Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Beth Burke with the Canadian American Business Council, joined by my fabulous co-host, Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. How are you? I'm great, Beth. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Um, I know that's a very Mr. Rogers thing to say, but Canusa Street is one of those streets that always makes me feel at home. Absolutely. Same here. I'm really (laughs) excited about today's chat. We really have a heavyweight in the realm of Southeast Asia affairs. So I'm going to turn it over to Chris to have a proper introduction of our guests. Oh, thank you, Beth. And and he's a heavyweight and uh, I should say he ain't heavy. He's my colleague because he's a Wilson Center uh, guy. The director of the South Asia Institute of the Wilson Center, Michael Kugelman, is a leading specialist on Afghanistan, India, Pakistan, and their relations with the United States. He's the editor or co-editor of 11 books. He's written for the New York Times, Foreign Policy Magazine, Foreign Affairs Magazine, and other publications covering topics ranging from U.S. policy in Afghanistan to terrorism, to water, energy, and even food security in the region. He's a, he's a utility player. And uh, Michael, it's great to have you on Caduceus Street. Thanks, Chris. I really appreciate the kind introduction. It's great to be here with both of you. Taking your time out of writing 11 books, you found time to chat with us. I mean, how do you have time to breathe, sleep, or eat with all of that? <laughs> It's not easy, but I try. Thanks. Well, good. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you. I feel like, you know, we're, we've been sort of talking about um, Southeast Asia, Southern Asia and India a lot, and there's been a lot happening. And, you know, you have spent a lot of time covering it. Is there anything right off the top that you would say is important for our listeners as we engage in the conversation here? Uh, you mean on, on South Asia on the whole at this moment in time? Yeah. It's- I mean, I think that one one thing I'm really uh, quite um, intrigued by is that South Asia is going to have five elections next year. There are eight countries in the in South Asia formally, and five of them will have elections: India, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Bhutan. So it'll be an interesting year for elections in South Asia, and potentially an interesting year here in North America. We have um, elections in the U.S. Uh, and Mexico for sure. Some people talking about an election in Canada either in 24 or, or certainly by 25 with a fixed election date. And one of the things that has been on our shared agenda has been, to some extent, the influence of South Asia in Canadian politics a little bit. Uh, obviously, the Indi- Indian ex- expat diaspora vote is really important, but also Canada's Sikh community, which has been riled by the assassination of Hardy Singh Nijar and has been very involved in, in significant ways in politics in the region. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between South Asia and, and Canada, the U.S.? You don't have to talk about Mexico unless you want to, but uh, here on Canusa Street, we're all about the Canada-U.S., so uh, bring that home for us. And, and why why is it that these regions are so connected? Well, I think uh, one thing that's very striking is that uh, you have a significant uh, South Asia diaspora presence um, in Canada. And, um, you know, not just in terms of Indians, but also Pakistanis, uh, a lot of Bangladeshis uh, who are in Canada. You all and your audience would know this uh, better than better than I. And so, you know, when we know that the Sikh community has really been uh, in the news, uh, so to speak, for reasons that we all know. But yeah, it's important to keep in mind that you just have more broadly a very large Indian diaspora. I think that um, 
the number of Indian students in Canada is the the largest of any nationality, which is quite which is quite striking. Um, so for me, when I think about links between South Asia and Canada, it starts with the diaspora communities, and that you know, in, in the best of times, um, can allow Canada's relations with the, the um, with India and with Pakistan, for that matter, um, enjoy some boost on people to people, person to person levels because of those very factors. Um, and you know, I also look at the India Canada relationship more broadly, and um, you know, it's quite clear that commercial relations, business exchanges, have really intensified over the last uh, few years. Looking at bilateral trade volume on the Canada India side, it's increased significantly um, over the last year or so. And I think that speaks to the connections between uh, South Asia and um, and and Canada. So as you have dug into all different topics. You've talked about, you know, water, energy, food security. You've talked about terrorism. You've talked about all these other things. What do you think moving forward beyond the elections is going to be the most dynamic set of issues that sort of shape the way U.S. and Canada interact with South Asia? Right. So you ask about the most dynamic issues. You know, I have to admit that when I think of the big you know, the core issues in South Asia, um, as I see them now and moving forward, uh, most of them are quite depressing uh, you know, in terms of themes. I think that economic stress has been a major reality throughout much of the region. To a lesser extent, India. Um, India appears to have recovered quite well from the pandemic period, and it's seen significant levels of GDP growth uh, over the last year or two. But pretty much every other uh, country in, in South Asia and here I'm talking about Pakistan, I'm talking about uh, Bangladesh to an extent, Sri Lanka for sure, as well as Nepal, Bhutan, and Afghanistan, which is in a whole other category, all experiencing significant levels of economic stress that has been in great part compounded by some of these external um, shocks that have, that have hit the world, the global economy, because of you know, the remnants of the pandemic effects, as well as the war in Ukraine and perhaps the war in, in Gaza as well. You know, inf rising inflation, really I should say soaring inflation in many countries across South Asia. Uh, also, um, many South Asian countries are facing serious debt crises right now. And again, India is excluded from this for the most part. Uh, it hasn't been hit as hard. Bangladesh also has enjoyed robust levels of growth in recent years to the point that it's been able to withstand a lot of these shocks that other countries in the region have not been able to uh, to withstand. So, you know, we were talking, I was talking before about how there have been some very, it's been very robust trade um, relationships between Canada and a number of the South Asian states, particularly uh, India. But, you know, if you look at the region on the whole and you look at the significant uh, economic stress that's playing out, that's not going to uh, let up anytime soon, I don't think. So that could certainly have an effect on the commercial relationships that Canada has and is looking to pursue with uh, with South Asian countries. I would also flag uh, very briefly the issue of democracy. Um, I think we live in an era when many countries are experiencing uh, significant levels of democratic backsliding. South Asia is right in the middle of that. Uh, you have so many countries in the region, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, I'd say Sri Lanka as well. Afghanistan, Afghanistan, of course, has been led by the Taliban for more than two years. So for me, one of the big storylines in South Asia now and moving forward is this assault on, on democracy. And it's ironic because 
as we noted before, much of the region will see elections next year. But I would argue that in, in many, if not most cases, those elections are not necessarily going to bring significant levels of, of political change. I think you're going to have uh, either in India, uh, the current government is, is very popular and enjoys a lot of support. It'll likely be reelected. But then you look at Pakistan and Bangladesh, where uh, the oppositions enjoy strong levels of support, but the governments have been cracking down really hard on them, meaning that you're not going to have, in my view, a level playing field, electorally speaking, uh, which means that you could have a return of the incumbents, which will just make the opposition and their supporters more unhappy. So I think that this, you know, the, these tough times for democracy in the region, I think, uh, has significant implications for Canada and other Western democracies that would ideally prefer to see different types of uh, political trends playing out. Michael, from politics to to maybe economics and technology, there's been a buzz uh, about India perhaps being the next China in terms of a a major offshore market with uh, ample labor, but also quite an access to high technology. Um, uh, The tech centers around Bengaluru and, and, you know, all of this kind of activity that we're reading about. To what extent do you think China China and India can be compared? And do you buy into that idea that India is the sort of China of the current century? Will it supplant China? Will it be able to help us decouple, for example, from China? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, we're starting to see, I think, India um, really grow out uh, onto China's level on a number of contexts. I mean, as you know, India, first of all, has surpassed China to become the world's most populous country. Uh, and India now has a top five uh, global economy. And indeed, as you note, it's become a powerhouse in so many different uh, sectors, particularly tech, but but so many others that we can discuss uh, as well. Um, but, you know, I think it would be premature to talk about India uh, approaching or, or surpassing uh, China's economic clout. I mean, you look at what you look at just how present China is economically around the world and, you know, on a very literal level in terms of its investment of footprint and across so much of the world, including Africa, Latin America, India does not have that type of presence right now. Uh, India certainly is a, a significant global uh, economic player and it's been able to uh, expand that economic clout well beyond the Indo-Pacific region into the Middle East. Um, but, you know, beyond that, India is not very present, uh, with some exceptions, Ethiopia, several other countries in Africa doesn't have a major investment presence and very little going on in Latin America. So that's, that's a place where India still lags. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I would argue that there's certain, that some of the key sectors in India are still very troubled. I mean, it's manufacturing sector, um, as well as, well, I should say it's defense sector, it's defense manufacturing sector is really encumbered by a number of uh, constraints, um, from outdated, um, uh, outdated equipment and, you know, indigenous uh, platforms to, you know, corruption uh, concerns and, you know, the agricultural sector in India, which has long been one of its, I think it still is the biggest source of employment. It's very inefficient and and, and productivity suffers a lot. That's going to be um, exacerbated by climate change effects in the coming years. So there's still a long way to go. And for all we talk about how India is emerging as a tech power, which it is, they could still use a lot more people that can work, so to speak. They need more employees. And one of the persistent challenges that econo- that India has faced economically up to right now is 
unemployment. I mean, this has been the persistent issue. And, you know, economists point this out all the time that no matter how much the, the economy grows, you still have this problem of joblessness, which is something that periodically leads to, to unrest and, and violent uh, protests. There were some just a few months ago. So I think that's that's something that India will have to uh, address as well. But, you know, final note on the tech side, you know, kicking things back to geopolitics. If you look at the U.S.-India relationship right now, you know, we all talk about how China is a uniting factor that the U.S. wants to work with India to counter China. Um, from a strategic and a, perhaps a security, um, even a military perspective, but the tech factor looms large as well. I mean, the U.S. really wants to see global supply chains diversify in a way that India can be much more positioned uh, there so that you have more uh, you know, tech companies redirecting production away from China and over to um, to India. And we started to see this happen to an extent in recent months. You know, companies like Foxconn are setting up new uh, facilities in India, but it's been slow. And, you know, it's true that India is not the only country that is cited when in discussions about where companies would want to relocate production away from China. You know, Vietnam also comes up. It has advantages that India might not in certain contexts. So uh, sorry for the long answer to was what was really, well, I guess not a simple question, but a, a good question. So bottom line is that, yes, India is well on its way, but it's complicated and still has a long way to go. Let me follow up on that while you're um, while we're in this this mode. So one thing that some people have have noted is you know the the shape of the economic architecture linking North America with with the the region more broadly, and Canada was willing to join the Trans Pacific Partnership, and even though the U.S. walked away, Canada did eventually join it. It's it, I mentioned earlier it has a connection with ASEAN. But it also, um, in connecting with ASEAN, has been exploring being involved in in what's called the RCEP, the Regional uh, Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which um, included India for a time, as well as Japan and Australia, China. And it was seen as almost a, an alternative TPP. Um, long negotiations, very limited progress, but India ultimately walked away. How, how do you see India fitting into this economic space? Is it a joiner or is it likely to be sui generis, its own sort of uh, behemoth that we all relate to almost bilaterally? Right. Yeah, it's a great question. I think you've hit on another uh, important response to your last question about how is India's economy developing vis-a-vis China. Now, there, India is is at this point where it wants to be more um, global in outlook with its uh, with its economic uh, strategies and, and policies. It wants to have a seat at the uh, the global high table, so to speak, when it comes to the most prestigious uh, economic clubs out there. And you know, it really profited from its year as chair of the G20 uh, this last year. But, you know, at the same time, India still resists certain types of uh, free trade uh, arrangements, which is is a reason why it has ultimately been unwilling to this point to join, among others, uh, RCEP. Um, Indeed, India had been planning to join. It was involved in negotiations. I don't know the, the, the full story, but basically it ended, it ended up walking out because it didn't feel comfortable with the obligations that it would be held to if it were to join RCEP. And, you know, this is another, this is also one reason why India has not been, um, you know, keen to, to join the likes of APEC and a few groups like, like that. You know, it's not being willing to shift away from what could one one could confidently describe as protectionist policies, particularly as they would apply to their agricultural sector uh, and, and so on. So 
Yeah, I think that, you know, India, true to its uh, its policy as a non-aligned state, I mean, that's something that relates to diplomacy. It also relates to its economy, I think, that it will it'll join up with those groups or organizations that it, feel, that it feels will allow it to advance its interest. And if it doesn't feel comfortable, that's not going to be a part of them. So switching gears just a little bit, um, we are just coming out of COP, and there have been a lot of announcements around reaching our climate goals. And, you know, South Asia has a very large role to play here. What do you think, you know, the reaction and readout to um, the announcements and discussions at COP are and how they'll play out in the the geopolitical environment here? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, the COP conferences are critically important for, for all South Asian countries, just because, as you know, South Asia is uh, by far, well, I shouldn't say by far, but it is one of the most climate change vulnerable regions in the world. And you have countries like India and Pakistan and Bangladesh that are um, so remarkably vulnerable for so many different reasons. Whereas, you know, you have a country and, you know, a country like Bangladesh, a low lying country, very vulnerable to things like uh, cyclones and sea level rise and all that. Then you have a country like Bhutan or Nepal, where you have to worry about glacial melt. So different types of manifestations of climate change, but they're all, they're all vulnerable in their own ways. Drought is another major, major issue in Afghanistan most recently. And I think that it's an indication of how seriously the South Asian states take the the, cult, the COP conferences, summits, that um, you typically have a very large representation of, um, of the top leaders of all these countries, uh, you know, the heads of government, the prime ministers, and, and so on. They're, they're typically there, uh, including this year. Many, if not most of them, um, were, were there. So yeah, I think that the last year, as you know, there was a somewhat of a surprising agreement to establish a a, a loss and damage fund, which is is something that the global south on the whole, but certainly including South Asia, had really wanted to see for quite some time. And there's not much that unites the countries of South Asia. It's a very uh, it's a country that lacks integration and cooperation and convergences. But one thing that there's something close to unanimity on is that um, it's very important that the developed countries, the industrialized countries, do much more to deal with um, with global warming, particularly because it's the global south, such as the South Asian states, that suffer disproportionately, even though they've historically contributed very little to global warming relative to the to the uh, to the developed world. So, and what I think was made many, uh, not well, not many, but a few states proud in South Asia is that last year, Pakistan happened to be the chair of the G77 uh, at the time of COP. And of course, G77 is this group of developing countries, plus China. And Pakistan really led the charge. Its climate um, minister really led the charge last year in the negotiations resulting in that loss and damage fund. So anything that comes out looking like that, uh, any further movement that would suggest that the developed world is willing to provide more assistance or mitigation adaptation to the global south, that'll be very well received by uh, by South Asia. Just one more note on this. You know, India, I think, you know, one has to single India out here just because it's, you know, it's the most consequential country in South Asia for economic, military reasons and reasons of population as well. It is notable that India's position changed a bit this year compared to last year. Last year, the Indian government um and if I say Prime Minister Modi made all of these very ambitious pledges to make India a net zero country by 2070 or is it 2080 within the next few decades. 
and laid out all these specific steps that India is going to take to affect its, its carbon transition. This year it was different, that Modi was really pushing a lot more for you know this broader idea of, well, we need to focus on what the developed uh, countries need to do to help us. And I think that might have been a case of Modi wanting to um, do something that he claims India is very good at, and that served as a voice of the broader global south. And that is the global south's uh, perspective. So, yeah, a lot of interesting things happening on the cult front as it relates to South Asia. Uh, Michael, I, I know we're always trying to keep these things short for time, but I wanted to get one other question in. You know, as we, you've got a region that so many people think of as being pivotal now. Looking ahead, sort of uh, maybe even just five or six years, what are you watching for? What are the, can you give us a sense of a trend that could really be significant for us, whether it's economic, political, demographic, that we ought to be following uh, here on Canusa Street with our long-range telescope and scanner to reach South Asia from here? Uh, for me, I would look at um, the issue of, of democracy. I mentioned that earlier, that there appears to be this significant assault on democracy. How will that look five to seven years down the road? I mean, will you have countries like Bangladesh, which are nominally de democracies now, but are trending toward authoritarians, authoritarianships? Will we see that will that be the case or will there be, you know, returns to the reversions to the norm, so to speak? That's something that I think is very important to watch. And I'll, second thing, very briefly, you know, I talked about the economic stress that the region is facing. Will the will a majority of the countries of the region be able to bounce back from that within the next five to seven years? Because for all we're talking about economic stress, you know, this is a region that has a lot to offer, you know, in terms of, 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 of exports, you know, tech, textiles, things like that. There's a lot hypothetically that can make this region more vibrant economically, but it's got to get through the difficult times for that. And we'll see how things look in five years. Well, we won't wait five years to bring you back, Michael. This is a fascinating discussion and, and I think so relevant to the global world in which Canusa Street is situated. Thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was a great discussion. Well, thank you so much for coming. It was wonderful having you. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.